Well, anyhow, you can tell from the decorations here and uh, out in the lobby that something has changed around here. Uh, a new season is upon us. Uh, Thanksgiving is behind us. Uh, most of us have now processed the 4,500 calories that we ate on uh, Thursday. I originally had in my notes, I put 10,000 down. I thought, that's probably a lot of calories. So maybe I should fact check myself and uh, found out that you consume about 3,500 to 4,500 calories at a Thanksgiving meal. So you would have had to eat like two Thanksgiving meals or three to hit my 10,000 calorie limit. So I corrected that and obviously Advent has uh, begun. And uh, this is my favorite time of year, like it probably is for, for a number of you. And uh, having this place so beautifully decorated, it kind of brings a little spring to my step. Uh, I always like driving up the driveway and seeing the Christmas tree lights on, so I, I let them on overnight because that makes me happy, I guess. So uh, many thanks to uh, Diane Rao and her daughter Danielle and the balance of uh, the folks who helped her uh, make this place look really, really nice. I really appreciate that. And as we've done for the last 21 years, uh, we pulled together a, an Advent uh, series, a, a series of, of messages that are focused on uh, the birth of Christ. And uh, this year we've entitled it Unto Us. And uh, the game plan, just to let you know kind of where we're headed over the course of the next uh, four weekends, is we're going to be looking at the Messianic prophecies uh, regarding Jesus's birth that are contained in the prophetic book of Isaiah. And over the course of the next four weeks, uh, myself and Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo, uh, we have four topics that we're going to cover. Today we're going to do a a child who brings hope. Uh, Next week, uh, you'll have Pastor Ben. He's going to bring a a king who brings deliverance. And then I'm back with a judge who brings peace. And then Mike Bongo insisted on this title. And uh, I I didn't personally like the title, but Mike was like, no, I want this title. I'm like, Mike, this is going to, this could torque people off. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So uh, the last one is a savior who brings prosperity. So we're going to have Bongo. We're not going to have Joel Olstein here. So uh, just to let you know, it's, it's not about like the prosperity gospel and things like that. So just in case you were confused, but Bongo insisted that it be that title. So I can't wait to see what he has pulled together. And the reality is our hope is that our time together over the next four weekends, uh, that your faith in in Christ and what God has done through Jesus's birth, death, and resurrection will will be buoyed up, would be strengthened. But but more than that, that that our hope is that, that, that all of us we would actually act on that, that, that the things that we learn today and over the course of the next three weeks would actually take residence in our soul and would transform the way that, that we interact with people and how we love on people and show kindness to people and how we are grateful to God. So uh, that's where we're headed. So let's get started. If you have a Bible, we're going to open up to Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 17 uh, this morning. Uh, You can check it out on your cell phone. Uh, It'll also be up on the big screen. If you don't own a Bible and you want to have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Uh, Please take one. It's our gift to you. We just ask that you use it uh, because it doesn't do you any good sitting at home on the shelf. 
uh, collecting dust. Allow God's word to transform your heart. So Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 17, and if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, I would ask that you would do so, please. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherezhebub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Can you get any more specific there? And say to him, Be quiet, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and don't let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands and the fierce anger of Razin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as the king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord of God, the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to peace, uh, pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razan. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son, Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men as you, as you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and he shall call his name, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted, deserted. And the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So let me give you the, the big idea for this morning right up front, and it's this. Hope is found in true faith and radical obedience. Now, I want to let that just kind of settle on us for just a couple moments. The idea is that hope, the thing that everybody's looking for is found in true faith, not some false faith, but true faith and radical obedience. 
not just a little bit of obedience, but radical, costly obedience. Now, as we know, our world is filled with people who are looking for hope. Perhaps you're one of those people. And for those who are looking for hope, the past two years has been kind of a rough ride. I mean, we are going on two years uh, into this seemingly endless pandemic. Uh, they continue working their way through the Greek alphabet of variants. Uh, there has been racial strife in, in our, our nation that has, has waned a little bit right now, but will certainly rear its ugly head again. Uh, there is political acrimony at, at all levels of our government. Uh, we have uh, inflation is taking off. If you've been to the gas pump lately, you'll know that uh, gas is a lot more expensive than it used to be. I think I filled up at like $3.65 uh, the other day. Uh, that's going to take a big dent out of my Swedish fish purchases. We have uh, these things called supply chain problems where you can't get the finished good because the subcomponents are not available right now. Uh, there's crazy rising crime going on. Uh, if you look in, into the news nowadays, you know, we've been basically freed from that. But back in the day when I used to work at a department store called Pomeroy's, which ultimately became Bonton, which ultimately actually went out of business, uh, people used to shoplift by putting like a shirt under their sweater or something like that. And now what's happening is you've got gangs of 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people coming into a store with, with hammers to smash and grab and taking, you know, tens of thousand dollars of, of merchandise. I mean, it's, I haven't seen that. I don't ever remember seeing that happen. And then you have the situation with China and, and Russia or rattling their sabers. The people in the Ukraine are actually terrified right now. I mean, they believe that Russia is actually going to invade. And you know what they're waiting for? They're waiting for the freeze because the tanks can't move through the mud. I mean, that's the culture in the world that, that we're living in right now. And, and we keep waiting for things to get better and better and better. But the reality is things are, are, are a lot of times they're getting worse. Sometimes they're staying the same, but a lot of times they're getting worse. And as a result, what happens when you're in this kind of cycle where, where you know, bad news just keeps kind of flowing to you, at, at some result, sometime you, you, you end up becoming resigned to it. Or it's just like, okay, this is the way that it's going to be. And then when, when you get to that point, then ultimately you're, you, you lose hope. And uh, if you find yourself in that place, and, and i got to confess that, that I find myself in that place at times. Uh, this morning, I've got some really good news for you, and I've actually got some bad news for you. And it's last, um, last Saturday night, uh, or this past Saturday night, when I said I got really good news for you, there a couple people were like, amen, you know, and then I'm like, and I've got some bad news for you, and no one said anything. I'm like, there's no amens for the bad news. Uh, but so that's what I have. So let me give you the good news. The good news is this. It's something that, that many of you already know, is that God gives us lasting hope. He doesn't just give us temporary hope, but he gives us lasting hope. I want you to listen to the words of Psalm 62. Psalm 62 was written by uh, David. We don't know whether he was a king at the time, 
uh, or whether he was young David who was running from King Saul who was jealous of him and wanted to kill him, or whether he was King David running from his son Absalom who wanted to take over the kingdom. But, but in any case, he's, he's, he's on the run, and he's despairing, and, and he's afraid. But, but this is what he says. He says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now in the matter of just a couple verses, David packs in just a ton of stuff about who God is and what he's up to. I mean, God is our rock, he's a fortress, he's our salvation, he's our glory, he's our refuge, and he's our hope. And folks, that's some really good news. That, 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 that God is this incredible lasting hope, and it is, or that or lasting hope is found in God. Now, <coughs> excuse me, there are a lot of places that attempt to offer hope. <clears throat> uh, many times our government tries to offer hope. They, they want to help people have hope. Uh, people look for hope out of investment portfolios. And when things are going up, it's really good. When, when things kind of tank like they did on Friday, it's kind of bad for people. Uh, people look for hope in education. They feel like, hey, if we get people educated, things will go better. And so they look for hope in education. Uh, a lot of people look for their hope in, in employment. And uh, after you are employed for a, a lengthy period of time, then you change and look for your hope in something called retirement. And uh, other people, then they want their hope in, in leisure. And while all of those things, they promise some type of hope, and, and they provide it for a little while, inevitably it's never a, a lasting hope because lasting hope is found in God and God alone. So, so that's the good news. So let me give you the bad news. Amen. That was a little joke. You didn't laugh at that very well, but that's all right. So the bad news is this. Few people are willing to do what it takes to actually appropriate that hope and to live in the midst of it. So the hope is available, but few people are actually willing to act, appropriate that hope and do what it is necessary to live in the midst of it. And uh, because hope is not something passive that happens to us. Hope is actually, it, it's active. It, it's something we must embrace. And, and we're going to see that as we work our way through Isaiah 7. We're going to see that, that hope requires true faith and radical obedience. Now, in order to do this, uh, what I thought would be helpful is I'm going to couple Isaiah chapter 7 with the corresponding passage in Matthew that talks about Emmanuel. That's what we're going to do. So we're going to look at Isaiah 7, and then we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1. And through this process, as we do this, we're going to encounter two different guys. And, uh, One's a king, and one's a commoner. 
So one's got a ton of power, one's got no power whatsoever. One's got a ton of money, one's got no money whatsoever. And what we're going to discover is, is these guys are both desperately in need of hope because hope, uh, everybody needs hope. You can have a ton of money, you still need hope. You can be a, a, as poor as dirt and still need hope. So we're going to discover these guys both need hope, and as we look at their situations and, and how they actually respond to their situations, we're going to discover four things. And these are the four main points of the message. So you get the big idea. These are the four main points of today's message. Is uh, There are two different problems. So as we look at these guys, we're going to discover two different problems. And then we're going to discover that, that, that God provides them one common solution to their two different problems. And that these guys have two different responses to the solution that God lays out. And then from those responses, that there are two different outcomes based on the responses that they had. So that's where we're going to go. So, so let's deal with the, the two different problems first. In Isaiah 7, we're introduced to a king by the name of Ahaz. And uh, King Ahaz is the king of uh, what's called the Southern Kingdom. Its name is Judah. Its capital is Jerusalem. If you remember, at the t- at when Solomon was still alive, so you had King David and his son King Solomon, uh, the nation of Israel was one kingdom based with 12 tribes. But once Solomon died, there was a lot of infighting that went on, and, and the, the nation of Israel broke up into two separate nations. There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom was called Judah, Its capital was Jerusalem. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, and its capital uh, was the city of Samaria. And so that's what you you basically have kind of going on right there. And uh, so you've got Ahaz. He's in charge of the southern kingdom, and he's got uh, responsibility over the city of Jerusalem. Now, Ahaz is a bad guy. He, he, he is an evil king. He does not worship uh, the God of the Jews. Instead, he worships a false god who has an idol by the name of Molech. Now, Molech is a bad dude, okay, because the worship of Molech involves child sacrifice. And Ahaz is so in to worshiping Molech that he actually sacrifices his own child to Molech. Now, as a result of of this grievous sin, God allows the nation of Syria, which is north of them, uh, which is led by a king by the name of Raisin, which is kind of like, you know, the little brown things that used to dance around on the cartoons or on the commercials or whatever. All right, California Sun Raisins or whatever. That's the guy's name. And uh, so the nation of Syria under the headship of this guy by the name of Raisin, and then the northern kingdom, Israel, under the leadership of a guy called Rimaliah, all right, they come together, and they're going to attack Judah. So, so you've got Jews pairing with Syrians who are going to attack other Jews. That's the situation that's going on here. And according to 2 Chronicles 2, Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, uh, invaded so much of Judah that, that they took 
the entire area, all except for the city of Jerusalem. And in the process, they killed 120,000 soldiers, and they took 200,000 of Judah's citizens captive. So basically, what has happened is, let's say that the northern kingdom is New York, the state of New York, that, that uh, Syria is New Jersey. So New York and New Jersey gang up on Pennsylvania, who would be Judah, and the capital of Pennsylvania, Harrisburg, would be Jerusalem. And so basically, the state of Pennsylvania loses all of its territory, except for the city of Harrisburg, to New Jersey and to New York. That's basically what we got. And then, then the king, which would be Governor Wolf right now, is holed up in Harrisburg, trying to protect Harrisburg. So that's kind of the picture that we have. So Jerusalem has not yet been captured, uh, but this is all about to change. So look again at verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 7. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Razin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. But they could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, which is another name for the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So basically Ahaz and the people that are living in the city of Jerusalem, they've got a very big problem going on. And their problem is so big that they are shaking like the trees shake in the forest when the wind blows. We get that because on Friday, the wind was blowing like crazy here in central Pennsylvania. Go through my neighborhood, there's leaves all over the place and tree limbs all over the place. And so these people are terrified. And, and they're in this bad place, and it's about to get much worse as a result of their disobedience to God. So hold that thought for a second. Now what I want to do now is we're going to fast forward 750 years. And... Uh, we're going to uh, look at another Jewish man uh, who's living in the town of Nazareth, which is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. And unlike King Ahaz, this man is poor. And he's a carpenter. And unlike Ahaz, this man is actually godly. He's a guy who's devoted to God. And his name is Joseph. But Joseph and Ahab has, have two, or one thing in common. They both have a problem. And Joseph's problem is recorded in Matthew 1. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, had been, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, rather than having a problem with an entire army like Ahaz has, Ahaz has, that's hard to say, all right? Joseph's got a problem with a single, solitary woman, his fiancée, a young lady by the name of Mary. And what is his specific problem with Mary? She's pregnant. And that's a problem... Because Joseph knows it's not his kid because he and Mary have never been sexually intimate with one another. And to make 
matters worse, Mary is trying to convince Joseph that she's never had sexual intimacy with anybody else either, that she's still a virgin, yet she has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Now, now we have read this story, you know, at least for me, over the last, you know, over four decades. But I've never really actually put myself in Joseph's shoes. But if I put myself in Joseph's shoes, this is what's going through my mind. Really, Mary? Is that the story you want to go with? That you're pregnant to God? You expect me to believe that. You see, from Joseph's perspective, he is engaged to a woman who's cheated on him, because that's all that he can process, right? But not only is that, that he's also engaged to a woman who he's believed is lying to him. And then on top of that, she would be considered a blasphemer because she's attributing all of this to God. So we've got two very different individuals here with two very different but very large problems. And my bet is this, that they are not alone. My, my bet is that there are some of us sitting in this room right now who find ourselves with large problems. We're in a, a relationship that is completely messed up. And we know that it's completely messed up because it's been completely messed up for a really long time. And we've tried everything. We've tried counselors. We've tried begging. We've tried changing our behaviors. We've tried pleading with this person. We've tried all of these things, and we simply don't know what to do. Some of us, we're in jobs that we cannot stand. We hate our job. We, we, we want out of our job. We, we would leave our job in a heartbeat but it pays a fair amount of money, and we've got responsibilities. So we're living in a place where we simply can't quit, and we're miserable. Some of us have more bills at the end of the month than we do have paycheck. And man, is that frustrating. You try and try and try, and you think this month, yeah, we're going to get ahead and then you take the car in for inspection, and you need two new tires. I mean, we all know how that works, right? It's like, oh, man, I can't stand this. Or we're dealing with addiction. I mean, we just cannot beat. We've tried. We know we're stuck. We know we're in bad shape, and we can't beat it. And, and, and we are, are terrified to let it out. Yet we know that if we don't let it out, it's going to destroy us and it's going to destroy our family. We have kids who are struggling for one reason or another, perhaps because of the things that they have done. And they are reaping the consequences of their decision, but sometimes it's because of things that have been done to them. And they are reaping the consequences of things that they didn't even do. And we want to help, 
and, and we've tried to help them, but in reality, we, we are stuck. It is completely beyond our control. We cannot control this large human being at all. And so, we're feeling helpless. Or we're sad, or we're depressed, or we're lonely, or we're anxious, or we're experiencing one of a million other maladies that, that, that come with living in this world, and it makes it really, really difficult. And because of that, we're feeling hopeless. And isn't that how it works? We have problems, we don't have solutions, and the end result of that is that we're hopeless. That's exactly where Ahaz was, that's exactly where Joseph was, and that's exactly where many of us are. So what are we to do? How are we to, to ultimately fix things? And, and the word we, that's the operative word. What are we gonna do? How can we fix things? And the answer to that question hasn't really changed since the dawn of time. The answer to that question is, we take things into our own hands. We figure that we are going to figure this out. So back to Ahaz. Look at verse three of Isaiah seven. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherjabub, your son. What a name. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So what in the world is the significance of Ahaz being at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field? Well, King Ahaz, he is at the well or the water source that provides water for the city of Jerusalem, which was surrounded by an enormous wall. And the purpose of a wall is twofold. It's either to keep the people in or to keep others out. That's why you put up walls, right? You either want to keep people out or you want to keep others in. And uh, the walls here for Jerusalem, they were designed to keep people out. And they were so effective at keeping people out that, that when an enemy would attack the city, typically what the enemy would do is rather than, than fighting physically for the city, that they would create a siege. That they would surround the city, and the goal is to, to starve the people out. So you stop the flow of food into the city, and you stop the flow of water into the city. And if you stop the flow of food, you stop the flow of water. Very quickly, people get very hungry, they get very thirsty, they start to die, and, and they're not going to fight. And they end up rolling over, and you take the city without a whole lot of bloodshed. So Ahaz is at the city's water supply and he's making sure it's safe because he knows that a siege is actually coming to the city. And if he can keep the water flowing into the city, hopefully he can wait out the siege long enough to the guys on the outside, they get tired and they go away. So in other words, what is he doing? He is taking matters into his own hands. And in the midst of Ahaz's attempt to solve his own problems, God sends the prophet to him who tells him some things in verses 4 through 9. This is what Isaiah says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Ahaz. 
And so God says, and say to him, Isaiah, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Razin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim, the northern kingdom, and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. So that's what his enemies thought that they could do. They could conquer the city, put in a new king. Then he says, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, and it will not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razin, and within 65 years, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So what is God's message to Ahaz? The guy who's trying to take care of his own issues, solve things his own way. He says, don't be afraid. These guys that are against you are nothing. They're like those logs in your fire pit that you burned so badly that they're not going to burn any longer that you move to the outside of the fire pit until you can actually throw them away. They're just smoldering and they don't, can't do anything. And you don't have to worry about them hurting you because in 65 years, they're not going to exist anymore. So that's the message. But God also, through Isaiah, says something else. He says this, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. You see, faith, true faith, is God's solution to our problems. So God is saying to Ahaz, trust me on this. If you do your own thing, it is going to go very badly for you and your subjects. That's the message. Now, hold that thought. Fast forward 750 years. Now let's see how Joseph decides to take the problem into his own hands and fix things under his own power. Look at Matthew 1:19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now many of you have been Christians for a long time. Many of you have heard the, the Matthew account lots of different times. And so that you know that a Jewish wedding in the first century is a lot different than a Christian wedding in the 21st century. In the first century, uh, uh, the mom and dad of a Jewish male would track down a young lady for their son to be engaged to. And after they're engaged, they, but prior to the marriage, they would enter into a legally binding contract called a betrothal and that betrothal could only be broken through divorce. So you get engaged, you get betrothed, but you don't live together, and then ultimately you get married. And once they get married, that's when you consummate the marriage. So how is Joseph going to solve this problem on his own of Mary being pregnant now that they're both betrothed and not married? Verse 19 tells us what? that he is going to divorce her quietly. 
He wants to do this in a way that doesn't bring a lot of attention to anyone. He really doesn't want to hurt her. He doesn't want to hurt himself, which is a lot different than most divorces go down in America today. Because most divorces end up, let's see who can hurt each other the most, is what happens. Joseph doesn't want to do this. He loves her, he cares about her, and he wants to shut this thing down in the best way possible. But just like God had other plans for Ahaz, God has other plans for Joseph. So look at verses 20 to 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not take Mary, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God shows up and tells Joseph in a dream basically the same thing that he tells Ahaz. Joseph you need to trust me on this. You need to have faith. I've got this. So what's God's solution for those two guys' problem? It always comes down to faith, to trusting God, true faith. Now, that's God's solution. That's the one common solution that God has to all of these problems, trusting him. And that's the solution that God has provided to Ahaz. That's the solution that God has provided to Joseph and every other hero or heroine in the Bible. It's the same story. Whether you're Abel or Noah or Abraham or Moses or Rahab the prostitute who saved the spies, God's answer to all the problems is trust me, have faith. Now, Ahaz, though, he had a plan to solve his problem with his own strength. Joseph had a plan to solve his problem with his own strength. No doubt, many of you have plans to solve your problems under your own strength, and I've got a whole list of plans that I have executed in my life trying to solve problems under my own strength. This is what we do. We're Americans. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We figure it out. We don't let anybody tell us what to do. We have a problem, we take matters into our own hands, and we figure out how to solve it in our own strength. And then, in the midst of all of this pride and self-sufficiency, God comes along and completely wrecks everything that we're thinking about. And he says stuff like this. Trust in the Lord, Mike, with all of your heart. Not a little bit of it, not most of it. Trust me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding, Mike, which you are so very good at doing. In all your ways, not some of your ways, in every single way. <clears throat> Acknowledge him. And what will he do? He will give you a straight path, Mike. That's what he'll do. And if that doesn't get my attention, he comes along and in Psalm 37 says what? Trust in the Lord 
And oh, by the way, as you're trusting the Lord, actually do good. Don't do bad things, do good things. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Actually see faithfulness as a positive thing, as a good thing. Delight yourself in the Lord. Be happy with who he is. Don't be embittered against him, Mike, like you're so good at doing. And he will give you the desires of your heart. Why will he give you the desires of your heart? Mike, because you have delighted in him. Your desires are now aligned up with his desires. So no wonder you're going to get the desires of your heart because what you want is what God ultimately wants. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. And he will act. That's the promise that, that, that God gives us. So we have a choice to make. What will we do? How will we respond to God? Will we seek to solve our own problems? Or will we trust God and obediently follow him as he guides us in solving the problems for us? Are we going to believe that he can actually do that? What are we going to choose? Well, Azahaz and Joseph, they respond to God in two radically different ways. Now, it's important to understand that God wasn't merely calling Ahaz and Joseph to true faith. He was also calling them to demonstrate that faith through radical obedience. So it's one thing to have faith, but if it's really true faith, it is going to result in us being radically obedient to God. So we see how this radical obedience plays out for Ahaz in verses 10 through 12. And again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord, the God, uh, put the Lord to the test. So God gives Ahaz a, a single yet radical command. And what does he say? Ask for a sign from me. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as in heaven. In other words, God basically tells Ahaz, I'm going to give you a sign, a, 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 a sign in nature, and you can make it as grand as you want it to be. You can make it so huge that there is no question in your mind that I am capable of pulling it off. So God says, go for it. Try me. Ask me to give you any sign that you want. You want the sun to move backwards in the sky? Not a problem. You want it to snow on a 95 degree day? I'll make that happen. You want the eagles to beat the giants? Man, you're asking a lot, but I'll try to pull it off. You see, God's command to Ahaz, it's so incredibly simple that anybody who has true faith is going to happily embrace it. Like, yeah, okay, this is great. Let's see what God can do. But what does Ahaz do? 
Instead of, of asking God for anything, any kind of sign, he says this, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now on the surface, this seems really spiritual because where have we heard these words before? Now you gotta understand, Ahaz doesn't have all the knowledge that we have because we got the Old Testament and the New Testament, but immediately when we read those words, where does our mind go back to? Jesus' temptation by Satan, right? And Jesus is on, Satan has taken Jesus up to the highest point on the temple and said, you know, if you're really God, throw yourself off this temple, uh, you know, this temple tower, and the angels will swoop in and pick you up. And what does Jesus say? God's word tells me this, that you should not put your Lord, your God, to the test. And that would be true. But here's the difference. In Luke 4, Satan is tempting Jesus. In Isaiah 7, God had commanded Ahaz. Ahaz had been given a direct instruction from God. He was not offering Ahaz a suggestion. He was issuing Ahaz a command. And Ahaz does what a lot of people do. A lot of people who pretend they have a relationship with God, but who really don't. They manipulate God's word to justify their disobedience. They try to be spiritual when in reality, they're not. Perhaps you have done that in the past. Perhaps you're doing that right now. You want people to think you're godly when you really aren't. And we might be able to fool others with our carefully tailored religious costumes. And we might even be able to fool ourselves but as we will see in a few moments, we are not going to fuel, fool God. And neither was Ahaz. So look at how God responds to Ahaz's religious charade. Verse 13 and 14. And Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself, he's going to give you a sign. You didn't ask for one. God's going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So here is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he's calling Ahaz to radical obedience. Ahaz has what? He's played the religious card, and God sees right through it. But that all isn't all that's happening here. I want you to notice... Who is Isaiah actually talking to? It's not just Ahaz. And it's not just the people living in the city of Jerusalem. And it's not just the people of Judah. He's ultimately talking to what? The entire house of David, all of the Jews, including the northern kingdom who's about to attack the southern kingdom. God is speaking to all of these people, and he has a message for all of them. He is going to give them a sign greater than anyone can ask, think, or imagine. A sign far deeper than Sheol, 
much higher than heaven. There's going to come a day when a virgin will become impregnated by the Holy Spirit without the participation of a human father. And she will give birth to a child who will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And what, if anything, that Ahaz understood or the people of Judah understood or the people of the northern kingdom understood of this prophecy, we don't know. And I could sit up here and I could read you about seven or eight pages out of a commentary of all of these crazy explanations of how people try to explain this. But this is what we do know. We know that God had a plan. And that, that this plan was to be revealed some 700 years later. And it's, that plan is going to radically impact Joseph's response to the problem that he's facing with his wife Mary. So what does God's call to radical obedience for Joseph look like? Look at verses 20 through 23. But as Joseph considered these things, divorcing Mary, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God, speaking through a dream, tells Joseph to put aside all of his fear and take Mary as his wife because God's plan is so much larger than Joseph's problem. The plan that God has is crazy bigger than the problem that Joseph has. So Joseph does just that. Look at verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Where Ahaz chose disobedience disguised as religious piety, Joseph chose radical obedience clothed in true faith. But you need to understand something. This wasn't going to be easy. Mary was pregnant. We don't know whether she was showing or not, but somewhere along the line, someone was going to do the math. Right? And for those of you who got pregnant before you got married, you, you know how this works. At some point, someone's going to do the math. I was about 22 years old before I did the math in my family. It took me a while to realize, a long while to realize, that my parents' anniversary date was May 20th, and I was born on December 3rd. I'm like, wow, something happened there, mom and dad, right? And they, they're, they're cool. They, they'd be all right that I would share this. Someone's going to do the math, right? Someone's going to figure this out. And, and, and all of a sudden, we know what's going to actually happen. All of a sudden, people are going to talk. And glances are going to be thrust their way. And rumors are going to fly. And accusations are going to be made. And the very thing 
Mary and Joseph's true faith and radical obedience, it's going to get questioned. They have been completely loyal to God, have trusted him completely. And people are going to say, oh, no, look at what you did. And they're completely innocent of it. But Joseph obeys nonetheless, knowing full well that radical obedience always comes with consequences. It's costly. Obeying God is always costly. Comes at a price. Forgiving those who hurt you doesn't cost them anything. It costs us everything. Making right a wrong that we've done. Crazy costly. Doing the right thing always comes at a price. So what do we do? What do we do when, when we have seemingly insurmountable problems that demand true faith? What do we do when God shows up, tells us to cast aside our worldly solutions, to put aside our desire for control, and calls us to radical obedience, obedience which is potentially extraordinarily costly? We can either follow in Ahaz's steps and respond with this false religious piety, or we can follow in Joseph's steps and choose radical obedience, even if it's going to be crazy costly. And what we choose will have a significant impact on what ultimately happens to us and those who we love, and that brings me to my last observation. You see, there are two different outcomes. And when we look at Ahaz and Joseph's lives, we discover that yes, they had two different problems. Yes, God gives them one common solution. Yes, they have two different responses and they ultimately yield in these two different outcomes. Ahaz chooses to do things his way. He chooses to kick God to the curb. Says, God, I'm not really interested in what you have to say. And the reality is, Although he's feigned being a godly person, he really isn't. He hasn't been walking with God for a very long time. So actually having true faith really wasn't even possible because he hadn't been hanging with God. And because he didn't have true faith, there was really no way that he could actually embrace this radical obedience. So what happens? Verse 17 of Isaiah 7 is what happens. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah when the, two came, when the kingdom was split into two. And then he says, what is that thing that he's going to bring? What are the bad days going to be? The bad days are going to be the king of Assyria. Now, what in the world is he actually talking about? Assyria was the powerhouse of that day. And one of the reasons why the northern kingdom and, and, and the people of Syria 
were, wanted to attack Judah was because they were worried that they were going to align themselves with Assyria. But they hadn't done that yet. But, but now that, that, that the, the northern kingdom and Syria is coming down to attack Judah, Ahaz, he's backed into a corner. And so he, he picks up the phone. Well, he doesn't pick up the phone. He sends a messenger. And he tells the king of Assyria, we need to make a deal. We, we, we need to create an alliance. And in order to create an alliance in that day, when you're the weaker power and they're the higher power, you, you've got to pay them off. And Ahaz is in charge of the city of Jerusalem. What's in the city of Jerusalem? The temple. What's in the temple? More gold than you can possibly imagine. All the furniture of the temple is made out of gold. All of the worship utensils are made out of gold. Everything in there is made out of gold. So what does Ahaz do? He raids the temple of God, gathers up all the stuff, and makes a beeline to the east, to Assyria, which is now modern-day Iraq, and tells the king of Assyria, here you go, here's our deal. That's what he does. That's how far over the edge Ahaz has become. Now, the king of Assyria, he actually honors his word. He attacks Syria. It takes him one year to wipe out all the Syrians. Then he attacks the northern kingdom. It takes him 10 years to take out the northern kingdom. Now, what Assyria has done is Assyria has now removed all of their other enemies because their enemies were Syria and their enemies were the northern kingdom. And so what happens next? The one who was going to be the savior of Syria, of Judah, sets their sights on Judah. And rather than being Judah's savior, Assyria becomes Judah's oppressor. And over time, the Assyrians get taken out by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians take over Judah and the northern kingdom. You see, that, brothers and sisters, is what happens when we choose to solve our problems outside of God's authority. When we choose to place our faith and yield our obedience to something other than God, it may work for a while, but it ultimately turns around and bites us in the behind and blows up in our face. And many of us in this room can attest to that very thing because we bear the scars of making decisions outside of God's will. But it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to choose poorly. We can instead embrace true faith and radical obedience like Joseph chose true faith and radical obedience. Look again at verses 25, 24 and 25 of Matthew 1. See, Joseph chooses to do things God's way. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph didn't wait for a day, a week, a month, a year. He executed he knew exactly what God wanted him to do, and he did it. And how many times 
Do you and I know exactly what God wants us to do? And we put it off, and we put it off, and we put it off. But not Joseph. He had had a real encounter with God. And through that real encounter with God, he executes radical obedience to the point that he even names his adopted son, Jesus, which is the Hebrew word, Yeshua, which we say is Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And that, brothers and sisters, is why we, like Joseph, can live lives of true faith and radical obedience because the Lord saves. And not only does he save us from our sin, which is incredible. The bonus, he saves us from our stupidity. That's what he does. He comes along and saves us from all the disasters that we create in our lives when we try to live outside of God's will. And so as we approach this Christmas time, and as we worship this babe in a manger, may we remember that little bundle of joy. He came on a rescue mission. That's what he came for. He didn't come to be some little nativity scene in the town square or, or some kind of cute little story on, on, you know, Hallmark television or something like that. He came to rescue you and I, not only from the evil one who wants to destroy us, but probably from our biggest enemy, which is ourselves. And he came to give us hope. And with that hope, he points us to living a life of true faith. Not some kind of manipulative faith, but God, I trust you with all that I have. And radical obedience, God, I will do whatever you call me to do. And he will deliver. He will deliver. There, I could probably drag 30 of you up here right now and you could tell us testimonies of how God has delivered you when you have chosen to live a life of radical obedience. And you will probably get up here and you will tell everybody how incredibly terrifying it was. But in the end, how God delivered in ways that you and I could never imagine. And so as we listen to the Christmas carols and we get blown away by the beautiful decorations and all the holiday cheer, may we remember that this is really about hope that flows out of faith and obedience. And if we embrace that, we will have made a lot of progress this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this time that we could be together. Father, thank you for uh, your son, Lord, you knew before the beginning of time that we were going to wreck this world. You knew, Heavenly Father, that sin was going to destroy your beautiful creation and your beautiful created people. 
And Lord, you sent your son, Lord, to redeem us from ourselves and from the evil one. And Lord, I pray as we go through this Advent season, that Lord, that we would not get caught up in all of the secular things of this season, but Heavenly Father, instead we would be enamored by the great work that you have done. Lord, would you help us to live lives of true faith, which ultimately we're all in radical obedience, which will be very costly, Heavenly Father, but always in the end satisfies because you always satisfy. And now, Heavenly Father, as we prepare to close our service by taking this offering, dear God, I pray that you would bless those who give. Thank you for those who give online, through the mail, who are giving right now. Uh, Lord, I recognize that, that people, uh, Lord, struggle and that they would see uh, fit to provide for the needs of this ministry, Heavenly Father. I am incredibly grateful for it. And Lord, I humbly ask that you would help the leadership of this church to be faithful in the use of these resources. May we never squander them. May we always be very generous with them. May we always hold this building and this ministry with open arms to be an incredible blessing because, Lord, you have incredibly blessed us. And it's through your son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. People said, amen. People said, Amen. People said, Amen. People said,